Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for joining us today. You know, we always enjoy visiting with all of our guests on the podcast, and I know Monty was particularly excited to speak with our guest today, Will Harris at White Oak Pastures. You know, Will has been recognized all over the world as a leader in humane animal husbandry and environmental sustainability. As a fourth-generation cattleman, he and his family were raising livestock in the typical conventional method. But in the mid-1990s, Will became disenchanted with the excesses of these industrialized methods. They created a monoculture for their cattle. And as Will says, nature abhors a monoculture. So in 1995, Will made the audacious decision to return to the farming methods of his great-grandfather that he had used 130 years before. Today, we get to journey along with Will as we understand the mindset, work, and fortitude it takes to successfully implement these farming practices. It's a great conversation, so let's jump right in. So, Will, thank you for being here today. It's it's awesome to to see you here uh, and spend this time together in person. We've visited briefly at some conferences in the past, grass-fed exchange and such, but uh, I'm just I feel really blessed to be able to pick your brain here for the next hour. So, thank looking you. forward to this. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to to be here with you today. Well, Will, we we always like to start off with uh, kind of folks giving us a little bit of their their farm, talk about their farm, their history, and kind of how they got to where they are today. So, if you could do that, that'd be great. True. So, my great grandfather came here in 1866. He had a farm about 50 miles north of here in Georgia. <clears throat> they lost in the in the in the Civil War. Uh, he was fortunate; had an uncle who started him over in Bluffton. He ran the farm, my great-grandfather, my grandfather ran the farm, my father ran it, I now run it. I've got two daughters and their spouses who are back here uh, helping to run it. And between the two of them, they've got three grandchildren, uh, three children who are my grandchildren. They're the sixth generation. They are two, four, and six years old. and as I said earlier, we've got a bunch of wonderful, wonderful people who are not family members that are very influential in managing this, this business. Well, that's incredible. We, you know, farming's a lot about a legacy, and it's it's great to see that you've got a legacy to continue on, both in family and in uh, adopted family, if you will. Through, well, so. you know, we we all want to give our children the opportunity to come back, but not the obligation to come back. And that's what my what my father did for me, and, and uh, that's what I've, I've tried to do for my children. Yeah, my dad was the same way. He said, if you want to, you know, you can, but uh, you can you can use my equipment to get started, but you have to get your own land to do it with. So it was, uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, a handout, but it was a, it was a hand up. And uh, I think that's a great way to get it started. And, and he never expected me to come, but he never discouraged me. You know, and when I was growing up, we'd just gone through the 80s farm crisis, so almost everybody in my high school class ran as far away from agriculture as they could and it's kind of fun to see now there's more people in ffa 4-h and exploring agriculture kind of coming back in it's just 
we got to make sure they're taught the right thing in school. So we'll work on that a little bit. We have an internship program, intern program, and we, we bring in uh, seven interns four times a year, so 28 a year. And almost almost none of them are farm kids. Well, they're not kids, really. Most of them are in the 25 or 35. But almost all of them are non-farm people that have chosen this lifestyle. That's excellent. Well, then you don't have to untrain uh, you know, previous ways of doing it. So sometimes as farmers, we could get in some bad habits and that's what we always have to do because that's what we've always done. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, tell people about your farm today that, that maybe have never, <clears throat> never heard of you and white Oak pastures before, uh, describe a little bit about what all you got going on there. And I think people are going to be pretty amazed. <clears throat> well, I don't know about what I'm amazed, but we sure are having a lot of fun here. It's, uh, the farm is, uh, 3,200 acres, it's divided up into 112, 30-ish acre paddocks. And we rotate, you know, I guess the, the thing that's, one of the things very important to us is constant movement of the animals. Uh, we uh, pasture raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, and rabbits. And we're hand butchering them a USDA inspected plant that I built here on the farm. We pasture-raise chickens, turkeys, geese, skinnies, ducks, and we hand butcher them on a separate facility right beside the Redneck facility. USDA also inspected all the <clears throat> We uh, We raised uh, certified organic vegetables and honey and pasture eggs and just a number of little ancillary businesses that on their own wouldn't be enough to make a living on, but really work well in this kind of organism. I think of the farm as being like an organism, and it's just part of that. Well, when people talk about diversifying the farm, a lot of times you have a dairyman maybe in California that gets some almonds, or you have a corn soybean producer in Illinois that puts up a hog confinement and to call that diversity. And I think you just listed off about a dozen species there of live animals plus vegetables, all the artisan crafts, and you do your own processing. You you. You, you didn't emphasize, this is amazing what you have going on here, Will, and, and all of the, the fortitude it took to, to get that in place because just, you know, working with USDA and such is, is, is quite, a, quite a challenge to get those certifications for your plants. You, you know, uh, the, the people I've seen move into this more land-focused, animal-focused, community-focused agriculture, uh, the ones who have not been successful are the ones who have focused so much on the production side and, and, and gotten pretty good at that. But, you know, you've got to be able to put it in a, you've got to put your production in a form that's monetizable. I say that you know, consumers don't buy cows and hogs and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. And then the, the next step is you've got to get it to them. And for the most part, consumers don't consume what producers produce. And getting it to them is uh, as important as producing it is as important as uh, processing. 
So that's an important point that you brought up there. So you talk about you have your, your, your animals and you also have the vegetables, you have the processing, but there's a whole nother aspect to this engine that you've built there in Bluffton, Georgia. And that's how you, um, I, I like to equate it to, you know, Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPhone and then just expect somebody to find him and, and purchase it. And, you know, he, they marketed what they made. You know, and it's a marketing first. And I don't understand as farmers, we always grow something and we complain about somebody not giving us enough for what we wanted for it. Where you're taking that extra step and you sell what you what you grow and produce. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your direct-to-consumer business. Yeah, well, first of all, let me say that for I spent longer as a industrial commodity centralized producer than I've spent doing whatever this is I do now. So nothing I say is meant to be critical of anybody. And I'm not an evangelist that's trying to get anybody to change what they do. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, uh, we, have a lot, we have people that come here and we're happy to show them what we do, a lot of transparency. But I'm not trying to convince anybody to do anything different. You know, we will tell you what our experience has been but I am not, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not putting them little Bible tracks around. To, uh, so the, uh, I never wanted to be in the processing business. You know, I wanted to, uh, I, I came up uh, this far as a monoculture of cattle and I ran it as a, I went to the University of Georgia, major in animal science. I came home and I ran it as a monoculture of only cattle. And uh, the idea of getting other species was not appealing to me. And the idea of processing was really not appealing to me. But, but farming differently was appealing to me. I mean, I, 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 the, the things I wanted to do differently, so I started doing them differently. And I enjoyed it more. But it, I raised my cost of production. No great surprise there. You give up the tools that science gave you to take cost out of production, you add cost back to production. So I couldn't, uh, I, was, I enjoyed that manner of farming, but uh, I could not afford to raise it that way and sell it into the commodity markets. Like I could not extract the value, uh, extra value I put in. So we, uh, we started uh, selling beef and uh, using local uh, slaughter plants, abattoirs to slaughter for us, a lot of people, as, as a lot of people do. Nothing novel about that. And I could see that it looked like the business model might work. But they, my slaughterhouses, very small family-owned slaughterhouses I was using, that's all we had, ran out of capacity before I became profitable. You know, I would... You know, I would call and say, I need to bring 12 this week. And they say, no, you can bring six. And I, I couldn't make it work on six. I needed, I needed to sell 12. I had them raised and I needed the money. So we reluctantly went into the uh, processing business at first with a red meat plant in 07 and later with a poultry plant in 2010. And of course, that was that's a very... You mentioned it being very uh, highly regulated, and it is. It's also very capital intensive. So uh, uh, we, uh, of course, it was borrowed money. So my my dad left me with a very nice paid-for farm, but you know I had to leverage the farm to to get the money to build the plants. 
uh, but we did, and we were very fortunate in the timing. The timing was very good for us, and we we made it. Uh, we did not. <clears throat> now, this I mean, let me let me hasten to say that uh, I'm very proud of our business, but it is a marginally profitable business. No surprise, it's farming. You know, it's uh, very capital intensive, and we we make money just about every year. But it's it's not it's a very low return. No, no uh, Harvard MBA would suggest going using my business model. But uh, what I like is you saw the vision through that you knew you had to get to a certain uh, scale in order to get the profitability there, and rather than give up. At where you were only being able to bring in six to the local processor or something like that, you said, okay, I don't want to, but I have to get into the processing business because that's, that's the hand I've been dealt. And you, and you took that risk, especially, I can't imagine what that's like having all your farm ground paid off and borrowing against that. You know, sometimes if this doesn't work, you got to think to yourself, oh, am I that guy that, that, you know, took five, six generations and squandered it? And uh, yeah, so that, I was, that, that took guts. That crossed my mind every night about midnight. Yeah. That really you helps know, you sleep. Yeah, it's good for you. It's not right. Better, better than I will. But, uh, uh, you know, I would, uh, I should say this, it, it, it sounded good the way you said it, but there was probably more naivety in me making that decision than there was brave and bold. Uh, you know, I never had borrowed money. Uh, I, I I didn't realize it was a, how how much easier it was to get it than it was to pay it back. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I made those decisions. You remember Alan Greenspan ran the Fed talked about irrational exuberance. <laughs> I had that. I had, and uh, so I, I I went to the bank, borrowed the money, built the plants. And at that point, you're so far in, the only way out is the other side. You, know, you would be that guy that lost the farm. So you had to make it work. You just There wasn't a choice. And, and uh, when you have to make it work, guess what farmers do? Yeah, they make and, it work. That, that's, that, that's exactly right. And again, as I mentioned, we were absolutely blessed with the timing. Uh, I sold, and then that was not skillful planning on my part not visionary on my part. That's just when I did it. And, but as it worked out, uh, I sold Whole Foods Market, the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. And that was during the time that the, it was before the big companies learned how to greenwash commodity meat and compete with us. So we were able to sell a lot of beef uh, during a window of time there, that was uh, that, that was really good for us. If it, had, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know what would have happened. It wouldn't have been good. Yeah, we we won't go down that rabbit trail of how they can bring them in now and process them in the U.S. and put a U.S. flag on it. But uh, that's kind but of they can, but but they can. But it's unfortunate, <laughs> and it's uh, and I don't know why all of our uh, you know political action committee, Farm Bureau, and everybody else that we pay into supports that, but. Anyway, that's a that's another topic. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, 
that gives a kind of a picture of what you've got going on. So you, you've got Whole Foods, and then I'm, I'm guessing from what I'm hearing you saying, that was a great start to the business, but still 2007, 2010, you know, mobile phones weren't that, I don't even know if they were available in 2010. They're, they're pretty recent. And the Internet for shopping experience, that wasn't 10 years ago a regular thing. So now, now your business is, is transitioned a lot to the direct-to-consumer uh, talk a little bit about that, where you're at today, and you know how much are are you working with grocery stores and and wholesale versus direct to consumer? Kind of what your what your business has evolved to. Yeah, the business has evolved dramatically. It was uh, exclusively a wholesale business. You know, I went from uh, uh, being able to uh, uh, only get six, ten, maybe twelve uh, bees processed per week to having my own slaughter plant kind of over now in a 12 month or so period and needing to move 50 or hundred cattle a week. That's a big and jump. I'm, and I'm in a, uh, a, a, a very impoverished county here in Southwest Georgia, one of the poorest counties in the state. So I didn't have a local market. And that's where we were blessed. Uh, actually, Publix bought Publix supermarket bought beef for me before Whole Foods did. But Whole Foods followed, and then Kroger, and then U.S. Foods and Cisco. And, it, and we were exclusively, purely a wholesale provider, and beef only for a long time. And then later on, we added other species. And, uh, and that's a uh, and, and it was probably the most profitable we've ever been again because of the time. Um, but you know, it's really, I'll say this, the folks at Publix and Whole Foods and Kroger, those people are good folks. And I've heard all the horror stories, but now they've always been good to me. You know, I've shipped beef to all three of them every single week for years and, uh, never had a problem, always gotten paid, you know, just nothing, I have nothing good things to say, but the truth is, uh, industrial farming and uh, big multinational food companies and grocery and food service all evolve together. And there's a codependency there that's just evolutionary. It's just part of the DNA. You know, all of those started post-World War II and they came up together. And uh, you know, I've heard farmers say that uh, those, they don't want me in there. They're trying to put me out. That's not true. That's not true. They're not trying to put us out. The fact is, we just don't fit very well. You know, uh, you know the, the meat coordinator from a big grocery company or food service company needs to be able to pick up the phone and say, I need 48,000 pounds of six-ounce Fillets delivered to the following 12 warehouses. And you know, why do pastors will never have 48,000 pounds of six ounce fillets to deliver? So you know, what's, what is perceived as being malicious is really we just don't fit very well. And uh, we, uh, we, uh, White Oak Pastures and, the, and the, the ones I mentioned, Whole Foods and Publix and, and Kroger, have made it work for a long time. But if, if, I, were, if I were showing up there today, I probably couldn't get in. Uh, 
but uh, I have nothing negative to say about them. But, but, but to fast forward, uh, the online, I guess Amazon, did not, they didn't invent it, but they certainly made it, uh, brought it to the party, online shopping, online purchasing. And uh, we went into that business in a very, I mean, we, we actually do the oil fulfillment here on the farm in a metal building with some uh, 40 foot coolers in there that we put together. But it, we did go in that business. And in about, uh, what would that be? 10% of our business uh, was online, which is not a lot. Uh, when the uh, pandemic panic happened, a year ago, uh, it just exploded, and uh, we couldn't keep up with it, and and of course missed a tremendous amount of sales. Uh, but we we stepped up all we could, and when it leveled out, which was I think March is when it really exploded and leveled out by about June or so. Uh, it, our volume was at twice what it was before. The you know it it it. Uh, it's still not enough for us to make our living on, but it's twice what it was. So it must be, uh, what percent would that be? Uh, It'd probably be 20% of your mix now. About 20, 25% of the mix now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's great. I mean, it was a, it was an opportunity to gain new customers that, you know, in, in our little, little business, we went five X, seven X for a few months, yeah. but then settled out two to three X ever since. Same, so, same numbers. Same yeah, it, numbers. Yeah. It's been great. I mean, it's uh, some were just panic and some were looking for an alternative. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's great. So talk to me about, I mean, a lot of change in the last 10 years you've just described. And you might, folks might want to re-listen to that. But talk to me about White Oak Pastures of tomorrow. Where, What's your vision for the farm and where you're going to be? What do you see? And, and well, I'm sure there's several things we'll, we'll look back and I think, boy, that was that was off, you know, but you always got to be looking to the future. What do you see in the next five, 10 years for you, your farm, and your family? Well, you know, I've never, you know, I told you my degrees in animal science, and I was raised cowboy, and there's never been a business plan here, never been a whole lot of forward projections, but uh, but there are directions, and we certainly do are put in positions where we have to make decisions, and uh you know, I, so we, we continue to add land. I, I do, I, my red meat plant is maxed out. Poultry is not, but I don't, I don't plan to expand either plant. I mean, when we grow to what we've got, that's, that's where we'll cap it off on that side of it. We continue to add land because we can handle more of our own animals. We currently use a producer group, and, uh, and I like raising them all myself. And I think I can get there here pretty quick. I like the idea of a single estate product. That just sounds good to me. And I like having that kind of control. And, and, so we're, we're, and I think that uh, non-irrigated land in my market is underpriced. I think irrigated land is probably overpriced. So I think that, uh, of course, we, we all know that land is not, it doesn't cash flow. It's never cash flow. But I think that uh, buying as much undervalued non-irrigated land as I can and putting it in my business model 
is the greatest wealth builder available for my family at this point in our in, in this generation. So we'll do as much of that as we can forward to, although it's it's limited. Cash flow is just not there to do a lot of it. Uh, <clears throat> direction. So I tell you this. Uh, uh, today we have uh, lodging on the farm. We got a number of cabins. We got a restaurant serves three meals a day, seven days a week. We got a store. I just put in an RV park. We got you know, you know we do we're doing more and more of that. Uh, they call it agritourism, and that's fine. I, I just call it sort of fixing for company. None of that stuff is, is profitable. Most of it is uh, increasingly profitable, so we're not hemorrhaging anymore. But it's, it's not losing more than we can afford to lose, and I believe it might be break even one day. I don't ever see it as being really profitable. But I'm glad I went in it because... People would come to see us and say, you know, I buy your, uh, your products at Whole Foods every week. We just want to come see how you do it. And we weren't equipped to, to show them around. You know, I was moving cows. Somebody was running the packing plant. Somebody was keeping the books. Nobody. And, you know, we gracious Southerners. We wanted to be gracious, but we, we, we had to gear up and equip to do it. And we did, and I'm glad we did. Even though it's not a moneymaker, I'm glad we did that. That was the right thing to do. So we put in the store and all those other things. Similarly, uh, we have a, a fairly inundated with people that would say, hey, I want to come there and work and learn. And I'll, I'll I work for free. You don't have to pay me. But this is what I can do and when I can do it. And, you know, we got 180, 180 employees and I can't have folks coming in and people justifiably if they say I'm gonna work for you for free they think they can do what they want to do when they want to do it but then I can't I can't run my business you know with my 180 people I love and somebody else I said no I ain't gonna do that you just so we set up an intern program and it it it, it too is break even but it's uh I'm really glad we did it I mean, we've hired a bunch of those people and, and met a lot of great people, and I'm glad we did. The reality. So, oh, well, fast forward to, to now, you ask the question, "What's next?" And and we have got to do something to deal with the demand for education. You know, I I started this business during the time when animal welfare, farm animal welfare, it was just discovered. You know, prior to about 2000, all discussions of animal, humane animal treatment was pet shelters and pets. About 2000, uh, humane farm animal care, or certified humane was came on and, and uh, uh, that became a thing and it grew. And regenerative agriculture now is where animal welfare was in 2000. And it's growing very quickly. We have a lot of people that want to learn what we do. So we're in the process of setting up a nonprofit called the Center for Agricultural Resiliency. And uh, we are going to, and we're developing a pro, we've hired a person and developed a protocol for people to come here and learn. These are people that don't have three months to be an intern, but do have a week 
to come and learn well, that's, and that so that's going to be a growing part of our business for the next year or two well really i was i was going to say what you're doing with the visits and the internships that is education and and you're just leveraging that further so instead of the you know short term product if you will uh, of a visit and the long-term product of a three-month internship. Now you've got seminars and weekly, um, that type of an experience that a person, so you can meet them at the level that they want to be met at. And I, I think that's a, that's an amazing legacy that you're going to leave, you know, you, is, is you, you educating those, all those people. Yeah. You just described that very well in terms of the, the, the some different, it's a different educational product for a different person. Yep. So the future is going to be helping to support this. It's going to be bringing the cattle that you need back to your own land by expanding land and doing more of what you're doing, but essentially helping others know about it and training up the, the army of people it's going to take to switch from a, a conventional chemical-based agricultural system to a regenerative biologically based agricultural system it's going to it's going to take a wholesale uh brain transplant and uh we thank yeah. you see you are a brain surgeon will you didn't know it you're 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 working on brains every day that would surprise a lot of my teachers <laughs> if, they, if any of them were still alive they'd be very surprised at that. but they're not they're not just I'm sorry. I like to joke around a little bit. So that's exciting. I like your view for, for tomorrow. And, and you know what? It, it's it's great to have those things, but it's hard to have everything written down. I'm with you. I, I kind of go with what what the flow is, what Mother Nature throws at us, and what how everything comes together. But um, you mentioned a number in that. You said 180 uh, team members now, and that probably doesn't include your, your interns and those kind of things. Before you got into this, and let's say you were still doing it right, what everybody else would say with your animal science uh, degree, we, we got them in feedlots, we're feeding them TMR, we've got the antibiotics going on, we got all the, the things you're supposed to do happening. How many people did it take you to raise, let's just say, a thousand finishers then compared to you know, what you're doing today? You know, describe that difference in the first off rural revival because we have more jobs, but the more people it takes to do what you do. Uh, talk about how that's that's changed from from yesterday to today. Well, you know, we we wouldn't have three or four employees; they would be sort of minimum wage ish employees, maybe a lead guy, and uh, and I was the only decision maker on the farm, and it was. You know, we 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 have about six hundred mama cows, and, and uh, I have a feedlot. You know, and I was feeding uh, uh, grain in a feedlot back then. Uh, and then you know, fast forward today is one hundred eighty something. Uh, payroll here is uh, over a hundred thousand dollars a week in one of the poorest counties in the, in the state. So that. The economic impact is very obvious. It was very apparent, and we're proud of that. I, I should tell you that <clears throat> the, you know, the three basic tenets of white oak pastures are uh, compassionate animal welfare, regenerative land management, and this rural revival. The first two, the, the management of the animals and the land, was very, very intentional. You know, 
didn't like it, studied it, made up my mind what to do different, implemented it. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. Re-implemented what didn't. Very, very intentional. And it worked, it worked very well over time. Not overnight, but over time. The third tenet, which is the rural revival, was absolutely unintentional. It was never, uh, I was never public-spirited enough or smart enough or, or thought that we were, could, would have enough impact to really change the town. But it, but it has. And I'm very proud that, that Bluffton, Georgia, has name our town. And we still have about 100, 100 uh, we got 180 employees in a town with 100, 103 people. So try that sometime, see how you like it. But uh, uh, it, the town has gone from being literally a dying little ghost town to being kind of a little destination. I mean, still a little, but you know, people come here and come here to live, they come here to, to eat, to visit, to sleep. You know, so it, it's uh, very unintentional, but very, very much uh, something we're proud of. Well, a lot of times we realize there's a lot of unintended consequences or negatives to what we do. And what I like to talk about, what you're mentioning right there, is I call that unintended benefits, where you just, you didn't dream that, but it just kind of happens. And even on, we're just getting started on our own on-farm enterprise. But in typical corn and soybean country, it takes one person per 700 to 1,000 acres to, to work. So our farm, we had three people working. But now that we've added livestock enterprise, we have, you know, three more full-time people working. And we have basically a full-time per- person and a half working at the marketing business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have two and a half times on the same acre base just mm-hmm. because we're creating more value and we're keeping that value in the community instead of sending it to Brazil through JBS or sending it to, you know, some other uh, Walmart or Amazon because we're doing those things. We're creating that value and we're getting it to the customer. And it's just, uh, I'm looking forward to being at 180 someday. You'll be at 10,000 by then, but uh, well, we'll, well, we'll get there. We I bet we won't. There's a limit to it. You know, we, we say that what we do is highly replicatable, but it's not highly scalable. In terms of scale, we're probably about as big as we need to be. Yeah, I mean, growth is not, we have a, the seven of us that run the company. Me, two children, two in-laws, and two non-family members. And we meet here in this building, this little, uh, my office, it was actually a one-room courthouse. We meet here every Wednesday at 1.30, and we, we talk about what we run the country. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that we we never talk about growth. We, we've had a lot of growth, but that's not that enough uh, for us. We never talk about profitability. We, we talk about how much money we've got in the bank or how much we ain't got in the bank, what we need. We uh, Everything we talk about is based on what needs doing for the land and the animals and the community. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. We're not anti-profit. We, we intend to make a profit. The profit is not the driver of everything we do. Ca- cash flow is a hell of a driver for what we do. You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it has a great impact on what we do and what we don't do. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
you know, I, I compare and contrast that in my mind to a, a stock company, publicly traded company, where, you know, they're obligated, the people who run the company are obligated to maximize the return of the shareholder. So it's all based on profit. And just how very different that is and how very different the decisions for a given problem would be coming out of those two cultures. You know, ultimately, profit is a symptom. It's not the cause. And the cause is is having the soil right and having your team right. And profit is what comes out of that. So it's you're kind of diagnosing the symptom instead of diagnosing the cause. And I like the approach that you're taking there. That's, that's great. Well, we, we talk about the abundance that the land produces. If you got all the cycles of nature working optimally, the carbon cycle, water cycle, energy cycle, mineral cycle, microbial cycle, you all, you got all those generators going, there's an abundance that's yielded and that's what we sell. And that's how we cash flow this business. And your, your example, similarly, is, is spot on that the next step is to have your, your uh, organism operating optimally. And that abundance then yields a profit, and the profit goes to, to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. So three people, part-time, maybe full-time, minimum wage, you're calling all the shots in the beginning. Now, 180, you got seven decision makers, two non-family, five that are family, which the five family can be more challenging sometimes than the non-family. It just depends. That's just how families work, right? Um, you talk about how you've changed the land over time, and there's some great resources we'll share in the show notes about that. I want to talk about you a little bit as far as how did you have to essentially regenerate yourself to grow beyond telling three people what to do every step of the way to creating this, this team of 180. How does that work? Because if another farmer's out there thinking, oh, geez, I can't do that. Well, you did it. You did it somehow. How do you feel that regeneration? You know, you had to grow as an individual to make this happen. Can you give us some insights there on, on how that worked? Well, I think I can. I've never been asked that question specifically, but uh, I'll preface it by saying this. Uh, I was absolutely have always been and still am a proud C student. I mean, I've never, you know, if if, if, uh, the people who went to school with me or if if any of those teachers were living, I was just a C student. And, And I've never considered myself to be uh, you know, the smartest person or one of the smartest people in the conversation. You know, I, I, I just, you know, I am pretty humble and I will listen and I will plagiarize. And and I'm a pretty good implementer. I mean, I, you know, I'm pretty good at, 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 at pulling the trigger on something. I mean, I don't have to study it endlessly. Just, you know, ready, aim, fire, you know, I was ready, aim, fire, 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 fire. And, and making changes uh, every time I fire, I make another change trying to get get it where it worked. And I so uh, and I I think that to you, I, I, a lot of people I've seen that hadn't worked are people that were so so smart and so analytical and so 
driven to want to know the how and the details that they miss their opportunity to pull the trigger. Uh, you know, I didn't. I did not know how to to borrow money. You know, uh, I did not know. Uh, I took the very minimum. I know finance when I was in college. My dad had never borrowed a penny. He was a child of depression and was very uh, uh, dead adverse, completely dead adverse. Took the very minimum accounting I had to take. I don't think it was even called accounting. I think it was called bookkeeping back then. Uh, and made my C, and it was fine. Uh, uh, yeah, it uh, just had to figure it out as I went. You know, again, humble enough to say I, I don't, I don't understand that. You're hitting me a little bit here. Uh, the evolution was very hard, you know, going from being the only decision maker. I probably had 40, 50 employees before I really added any layers uh, to, to that process. Today, it's very linked. I mean, it's, you know, the seven directors supervise 26, I think, managers that supervise the hundred and whatever employees that, that we got left out there. And that added to the quality of my life more than anything else. You know, a, a lot of decisions I don't have anything to do with. We we call it peeing on it. You know, and I don't have to pee on it. We just we just go with it. You know? <laughs> Doesn't have to be of, yours. There you go. <laughs> you know, we don't have to. Uh, we, you know, we make a lot of mistakes, and we don't ever point fingers. You know, we, uh, we we consider it to be. Uh, 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 honorable to say, I, I made a mistake here. If I screwed this up, we got to fix it. You know, to be the one to say, I made a mistake, not to be the guy to say, you made the mistake. Yep. So, so eliminating that culture of blame or that culture of it's okay, it's it's not okay to fail, okay? You know, so if you can fail and you can accept a mistake, I mean, that's a huge way to learn more and learn new. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some people celebrate it. I mean, oftentimes I learn more when I screw up than when I get everything right because I know what I definitely don't want to do again. So yeah, it's, gonna, uh, if, if a person makes a mistake here, we're going to talk about it till they understood they made a mistake. As soon as they understand they made a mistake and acknowledge it, we're not going to talk about that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yep. So a lot of a lot of personal growth had to go into this journey, and I thought it was also interesting too how you said when you added more leadership within your organization, how your quality of life became better. Talk, mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. The one man captain of the, the 50 person pirate ship versus now we've got, you know, uh, a team underneath of you and, and different <clears throat> responsibility areas. How, how does that, how does that feel different? How did that process come into place for you? Well, I tell these young managers that we hire that, uh, if you can't get things done through others, your business will never get any bigger than you are. And we, we, we really focus on uh, being sure that, that people, managers understand they are running a business. That's their business. We're going, we're going to help you, and we're going to provide resources, and we're going to provide backup, and, but it's your business. And if you can run it and grow it, and, and find other people to help you run and grow. It, 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 it can grow. You can do, and, and we believe in uh, compensation contribution. 
if all you do is stand out with a water hose squirting water on the grass, that's not much of a contribution. And you're not, you don't get paid too much. If you're able to get that done with, some, some, with somebody else, and also somebody's on the lawnmower, and also somebody's picking up pecans, and also somebody, then, and you're able to make that work, then you, the, your contribution went up, so you're gonna be compensated by. It. And keeping people uh, equitably compensated is something that requires a lot of focus. You know, we're here, everybody is so diverse. We have people cutting meat, people moving hogs, people feeding chickens, people at the store. People, it's just so different. It's hard for us to provide a lot of focus to keep compensation equitable with uh, what, they're, what they're producing. Well, I think we get a chance to work with um, a lot of large farmers that maybe are doing commodity crops or they're doing specialty crops, but essentially they're selling it to a, a third party who's selling it to a, that there's a process to it that, you know, it, it's four or five, it's a conventional ag paradigm. You know, when they look at or think about the extra people it would take to produce the product in, into something that people, like you said, from cattle to beef, you know, we quit selling cattle, we're selling beef now. And, and all those steps that it takes, it's, it's a little bit overwhelming for other people. So, but I think there's a tremendous amount of value instead of giving away 87% of every dollar. If we can keep that, uh, there's, there's opportunity there. So, you know, that, that, you, you raise a good point. You know, we, we humans, we, we want to silo things. We want to silo knowledge. You know, if you're a, uh, plant pathologist, you will know everything there is to know about plant disease and probably don't know much about anything else. And that's certainly true with knowledge, but it's also true with functionality. You know, if, you, if you're a farmer, understandably, you won't farm. And, you know, if somebody else says, well, I'll, I'll take it and process it for you, that's what you want to hear. And somebody else says, well, I'll, I will market it for you. And somebody, somebody says, I'll distribute it for you. These are things you want to hear, but it allows you to do what you're good at. But remember, those people aren't doing it to help you. They're, they're doing it, and there's nothing wrong with it. They're doing it to profit. Right. So if you were, if you were growing it, processing it, marketing it, distributing it, you get a hundred cents out of every dollar. You'd have to spend some of it for the processing and all that. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you mentioned, I think, uh, 14 cents. Isn't that right? You know, what, you know, I think that's it? the last they said, 13, 14 cents every dollar. <laughs> yeah. and, and basically what you've done is bought a lot of convenience. Mm -hmm. Because, you, <clears throat> you know, it's a lot better <clears throat> to load on the truck and haul them to the auction barn mm -hmm. and pick up a check tomorrow. I mean, that's... Uh, there's a lot of uh, avoided angst in doing it that way, but it comes at a price. Right. And, there, and there's a cash flow aspect to it, too, because I think about when we put our bulls out in August, okay, we're not going to get that beef into our freezer until three years from then. And then we may take up to six months or 12 months to cash flow that back out. And we've paid the processor 
you know, $1,000 per animal on, in our case to, to do that. So, I mean, there's, you know, that's a big negative cash flow to, to get started on. And uh, I think that's, that's pretty scary for some people. But what I, want, what I want farmers to hear is it can be done. And, and you can change. You can become a leader of a larger organization to capture that value instead of just giving it away uh, to somewhere else. And I think that's that's a, a great thing that you've that you've done to to grow past that two or three people in order to to accomplish that. Yeah, let me, let me say, yeah, yeah, yes, that's true. But let me let me say one more thing. Uh, I'm not again. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not trying to get people to change what they do. And so it's it's incumbent that I bring this up. Uh, let's take what I do versus what my friends and neighbors and relatives do here. Both of them are very uh, capital intensive. What I do and what they do in the commodity industrial centralized market. Both of them capital intensive. Both of them are fairly low margins. Now my margins are higher, but I take a lot, a lot, I, I put a lot more into it. But the risk in what I do is so much greater than the risk in what they do. You know, and, and I'm not saying that conventional farm is not risky. No, I'm not saying that. But there's so many tools, you know, from hedging to crop insurance to uh, the, the number of, uh, we can go into it, you know, as good as I do. Their tools are not available to me. So before we brag too much on my business model, I should acknowledge that, you know, I think probably the risk to reward ratio is worse in what I do than in what they do, which is why one of the reasons why a lot of people aren't streaming into this, you know, the, you know, I was an almost science graduate and I heard him talking about the risk to reward ratio. I didn't know what it was, but uh, I, I do now. And, and there's a lot of risk for a modest amount of reward when we make these transitions. So that's just a, acknowledgement of what's true. Well, I, I always appreciate your wisdom. I get your newsletter and I, I, I read your blog and, uh, those are definitely wise words to, to live by. It's, you're not doing this because you want to get rich quick. You know, I don't know mm -hmm. of anything in farming that's that way. You're doing this because you want to enable yourself to do farming in a different way. The, the newsletter you get that I wrote has been cleaned up a right good bit from what I wrote it. It's been, it's been, well, I know it, if it's in all caps, it's the real deal. Yeah, they've taken some expletives out of there, probably some examples. Like well, that's okay. We all need helpers, right? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about opportunities uh, here uh, to, to visualize what all you got going on. You mentioned a little bit. The opportunity to visit your farm, um, share that with folks a little bit. How they can how they can get online, connect with you, come see what you're up to, and just get an idea how agriculture can be done differently. Well, we got a website. It's whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, there's a newsletter you can sign up for. I think it, I think you go on that invites you to sign up for it. And you can if you want to. Uh, we do have. Uh, cabins that we can uh and some houses that you can uh rent for a day or a weekend or week or whatever uh, there's also some uh 
we do some schools. We, we just started that. We're going to do more of it. I think the two, the two, the two men I respect most in the regenerative uh, agriculture space are Spencer Smith from Nevada and Gabe Brown from North Dakota. And uh, Spence was here about three weeks ago, and Gabe will be here in about two weeks. And you know, we we pay the expenses, get them here, and charge folks to, to come and, and listen to them. Uh, we don't do a lot of that. We're going to do more of it. Uh, we do some things internally here, you know, schools and things, from cutting meat to uh, hog production, cattle production, sheep production, poultry pasture poultry production. And we uh, uh, and we again we serve three meals a day, seven days a week. Well, we're certainly looking forward to coming down there. My wife and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago, and we planned to come down last year, but, you know, craziness hit. Um, so hoping to get down there in September or something in between our uh, world-famous concert with the cows in August and, and the beginning of harvest. So uh, we hope to come down there and, and, and see what you've got going on. It, it just it sounds really amazing, and um, I just – I think it's a, a great way for people to visualize. When you can see things uh, with your own eyes, I think as farmers, if we could get out away from our farms more and, and interact with more people, see more things happening, I think it makes it easier to envision making a change on our own farm. Because, you know, like you said, uh, with the way you wanted to raise animals, it wasn't conducive to sell them wholesale. So you had to capture that profit. Well, then that requires this, 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 this. Uh, so essentially... You said, this is what I want to do because this is the right thing to do, and, and gosh darn it, uh, we're going to make it happen. And I, I, think that's, uh, I think that's pretty amazing what you've done there. Well, and, and what you said about this and others, you know, I've never had a, an original thought in my life. Everything I've ever done came from seeing what somebody else did and, and liking it and coming home and plagiarizing it or thinking, you know, I can't, I don't want to do that. So that, that's been a, a great help. That's awesome. Anytime we mentioned uh, briefly greenwashing, and we, we agree that's too long a the, the topic to get into. But I will say this that you know it, it's incumbent uh, for people like me to fight greenwashing. You know, when they do that, they devalue what I do. Mm-hmm. So I've got to I got to stand up and tell the story, and I do. And. The only, and you know, those, those people, those multi-billion dollar multinational companies have got such talented people to do that greenwashing, and we don't have them. But the, the shield and sword that we have are authenticity and transparency. And uh, the, the tourism, if that's what you want to call it, business we've got, allows us to put what we do on open uh, demonstration. And that is, that's good for our business. You know, it, it, all our customers all over the country, a small percentage of them are really going to come here and look. But 100% of them know they could come here and look because they know that a percentage is coming here. And, look. and that's powerful. And that is, again, that's the sword and the shield. And I think what you did with uh, General Mills and uh, to quantify what you've got going on there is is excellent. We'll have that study in the show notes and your blog article on that. 
And I think that's one way to have the transparency on a mathematical basis, right? you got to have the proof, but ultimately it's on an emotional basis. People have to be able to connect and see and believe. But there's a very there's a quote that sticks in my head a lot that a very wise person once told me. He said, there's only three things in this world that you cannot hide. And I'm going to let that wise person finish this. One is the sun. One is the moon. And the truth. The truth. Eventually, you will see all three. Mm-hmm. So I remember you saying that, and uh, uh, that's true. And and that's how we that's how we have to approach this. You know, four pounds of meat is all you can have. Idea. You know, it's just give me a break. Uh, you know, switching everybody over to soybean oxalates and all this other engineered food or lab meat. And you can only have four pounds. I mean, we need to be having regenerative raised meat that is sequestering carbon, making our lives better, instead of creating some sort of lab thing and and all the unintended consequences. So you know, I, I'm not I'm not one of the livestock people that that rails against being a vegetarian or, or vegan. You know, if somebody tells me that they are vegetarian or vegan. Because they just can't bear to eat something that was a living animal. I respect that. That's not my view. That's not my worldview, but I respect it. Mm-hmm. They tell me they are vegetarian or vegan because they just don't like the way it feels in the mouth and or, they, or it makes them feel bad. I respect all that. That's fine. I, it's a lifestyle choice. You make it, I support you. But now you can't tell me you're doing it for the environment. That ain't okay. It's not. I won't won't stand for it. And I'm okay with people. If they want to have that choice, for for whatever reason, they can have that choice. But then all of a sudden when we get, you know, the government regulating what we can do, you know, I I think that's that's a whole other can of worms there. So it's, uh, it's some wild times we live in and a lot more fun to come, right? I think so. Well, Will, I certainly appreciate your time today. I, I uh, wish you continued success in what you've got going on there in, in Bluffton and just an amazing story. It uh, has, uh, you've been in, it's taken years to be an overnight success, right? And uh, <laughs> just one step forward in the right direction all the time is all it takes. And then, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, you're, you're an overnight success. So it, it's, it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing to see what you got going on there. And if you ever find your way up in uh, in the land of uh, Lincoln here, you're certainly welcome to stop by. We'd be we'd love to host you. So, thank, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on today, and I hope you will come see us. I will. We'll be down there this summer. Thank yeah. you, Will. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to head to Bluffton, Georgia, where it sounds like they're always fixing for company. Will and the team at White Oak Pastures illustrates what it looks like to operate with authenticity and transparency, and you can tell from the conversation that they love what they do. You know, on their website, you'll see a tagline that says, In Soil We Trust. Pretty sure that shows how they feel about building soil health. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers to implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.